Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to hear the story of their first experience of God, calling to ministry, deconstruction and present journey. Hi everyone, welcome to our next episode in season two. This is our first episode in which we have a guest joining us and we're going to be talking with them about some of their journey for deconstruction and where they find themselves now. If you remember the three questions that we posed in our intro, we're going to be posing those to all of our guests and uh, here's the first answers on that. So tonight we're joined by Christopher Harrison, who is a Methodist minister and has been deconstructing and reconstructing and is in an interesting space, I think, in terms of his relationship with religion and church. And so you're going to hear just now from him uh, some of the thoughts that he had in response to the questions we asked him. It was a really fascinating conversation. It went in some directions that I wasn't expecting almost, but it was really cool just to have Christopher's openness and his willingness to engage on some of his past story, um, some of the more quite poignant moments of his time within the church institution, and then sharing with us just some of his current thoughts around where he's at and the people that he's working with. And I really enjoyed that sort of flow his sort of moving into the church, the moments in the church, some critical points at which, uh, you know, he, he found that it was time to move out. And there's one specific moment that you'll hear him share, which is, which is really, it's kind of heartening and, and hopeful and sad all at the same time. And I love that he was willing to share so, so openly with us around that. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And as, as, as you mentioned as well, there's just those layers of emotion, those layers of tension that come through as Christopher talks, and I think are just really valuable. Christopher, thanks for joining us. It's obviously as a as a thinker and worker, you've got background, you've got a lot of thoughts, you've got a lot of experience, but we also want to get one step beyond that to you as a person and your process and your thinking and your feeling. That's more where I envisage the conversation going, although understandably it all bleeds into one anyway. But but, you know, often when people talk about these kind of stuff or talk about theological issues or political issues or anything like that, there isn't that sense of who is this person or what is their journey. And um, I tend to feel that that's, that is, that's really valuable. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, as I interact with people, I find that they, they respond more to that anyway, because it's, it's invitational in the sense that, you know, everyone's on their own journey. And so it helps people. It helps people to understand what's guided other people's thinking, you know, and it gives them a bit of a framework because not everyone is deconstructing off in the same direction. You know, some people are very much deconstructing away from Christianity and some people are deconstructing the sense of going, how do we reform it? You know, um, so, so there's, there's, there's so many different trajectories and what we're doing for season two is just featuring different people with different voices, you know, and different contributions along those lines. And, um, and you're very much one of those. If, if I can just uh, jump straight in, the initial real question is just, uh, you know, somewhere in your life, in your history, <laughs> is your experience of your initial calling and your initial experience of God? What was your experience of calling and how did you get into this, this career? <laughs> Yeah, uh, let me let me start with uh, my initial experience of God. 
you know, um, my uh, my experience of God, I, I was born into a Methodist family, a Methodist minister, and my mother grew up in the manse as well. Uh, and my uh, my father, my mother's uh, was obviously a daughter of a manse, but both her grandparents were Methodist ministers as well. So, so that's from my mother's side, and then from my father's side. So. In essence, if you put the whole picture together, fourth generation Methodist ministers. Uh, and uh, my grandmother, uh, deeply Methodist, the other one was deeply Anglican, but married, married a Methodist minister. So there's a lot of churchianity uh, and Christianity woven into, uh, into the background. So born, being born into a, uh, into a man's, I really uh, knew what it was to have a very godly set of parents. Um, very devout, very devout, uh, devoted in their uh, in the expression of their faith, and that was modelled for me. So authentic prayer, authentic lives, uh, wrestling with things, and so grew up in a home that, and I know this perhaps isn't the right thing to do, but we used to wrestle with things, uh, Christianity things, over the supper table or the lunch table, and we would wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus. And, and we would unpack, this person does it this way, and this person does it this way. Uh, and my mother was very critical of folk who didn't follow the straight and narrow. My father was more, far more pastoral and far more uh, broad thinking in his mind. And so having even the different expressions of a faith journey, both deeply devoted, but both expressing that in a slightly different way. Uh, that devotion was infectious, inclusive, and quite dynamic. And I felt that uh, I saw in my parents a faith that was rich and real and relevant and cutting edge uh, for them. My father, my father's experience of uh, the spirit and so on was very, uh, was very healthy, though he came particularly uh, for more from a Christocentric than from a, uh, a cross-centered, I should say, uh, theology than a spirit-led theology. And so there was, it was a lot of growth for him in that particular space. Whereas my mother's faith was quite experiential, uh, though she was the more, perhaps the more conservative theologically, her faith was exceptionally experiential and was expressed in music and so on. When my sister came to faith in Jesus, it was a very deep experience for her. Uh, and she was two and a half years older than me. And uh, though I'd, I'd grown up praying and given my life to Jesus as a child, and I was deeply ingrained in the scriptures, memorized scripture, uh, went to Bible, uh, Bible um, holiday Bible clubs and so on. Uh, but I was a very, very shy, very insecure child and very uh, introverted. And I don't understand all three of those, why that was me. It's just my makeup. Uh, and my shyness, perhaps because my parents were in the spotlight so much of the time, my sister being an extrovert, I was, would rather be under a chair than on a chair. And so my experience with God was very um, internal uh, and uh, very um, personal at that level. When my sister said to me, Christopher, you, you need to make a decision to follow Jesus yourself, you know, the whole, uh, the whole concept of this is a personal relationship not just a, f a family oriented faith. And so I said, okay, but even though that was real for me, uh, very personally, I would make a decision in that space. It was really, I can't say it was just simply cerebral, but it was an intentional thing to say, whatever had gone before, I want to respond to this God who loves me irrevocably, unconditionally, extravagantly, dynamically, I would like to step into that. 
And with that came a deep, deep assurance uh, and something radical changed in that moment. Uh, that was about 16, when I was about 16. And when I reflect on that uh, initial set of experiences of God, uh, my 21st birthday speech, you know, I had about 100 people at my 21st birthday party, and I did a, a speech, and I, I reflected on, from the age of 16 to the age of 21, the radical shifts that had happened in my world. Uh, from a shy, introverted, uh, insecure child, suddenly I had discovered that I was doing things which were not natural to me. Uh, leading groups, leading people to Christ, preaching, uh, you know, standing up and, and leading uh, congregations in worship songs and so on. If you asked me to perform a song, I would fall apart and, and, and run under, under the stage. But if I was leading worship, uh, I was confident, more confident in that space and increasingly so. So that was fascinating for me uh, to see that that evol evolution of my own intimacy with God and friendship with God gave me more and more increased confidence. And so even as I reflect back, and uh, I'm 61 now, 40 years, uh, that, that has been very clear for me. Uh, this was ratified for me um, uh, during the, the period I, I was prayed for uh, and, uh, and, and experienced speaking in tongues. I experienced closeness with God, and that was great, and that was fine. Explored movement in the Spirit and, that, and intimacy with listening to the Spirit, and particularly in a devotional, personal kind of way. So when I was in Luchikart and hit a, hit a wall, uh, after one year of ministry, the, the, the bishop told me that uh, I'd done apparently a significant enough job for them to keep me another year. I didn't want to stay another year. I wanted to go to university. But they kept me a second year, and I was quite angry in that space. And so I moaned at God and sat down at the communion rail and uh, prayed. And I just said, God, you know, what are you doing? I'm lonely. I, I need companionship. I need to be amongst young people. Louis Trickot, there's no young people. I'm ministering in five black congregations, two white congregations. I'm pouring my life out. I'm studying to uni. So I'm doing my best in all these spaces. And just feel completely alone uh, and, and wept in my prayer. And in that moment, I felt a reconnection with my initial intimacy with God, uh, even though I was now in ministry and a so-called professional Christian. That intimacy really reignited again. And I felt the whisper of the Holy Spirit into my inner being, saying, uh, in essence, I've got you. I'm right here. I've got you. And that has never left me. In 40 years, um, so well, it's about 37 years, 38 years since then, that deep awareness of God's uh, intimate connection with the fabric of my being, and that He has held me through times of exceptional betrayal and denial. People have gossiped and, and uh, uh, said awful things about me, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I have always had the deep confidence that no matter what, there is the assurance from a child growing through to young adults and into the days of ministry that God is with me. And that didn't stop me from being stupid and idiotic and sinful and rebellious and all the rest of it. But in the midst of all of that, a deep sense in the midst of my, the fabric of my makeup, the DNA of who I am, uh, that I'm a child of God. And so I wrote into uh, you know, my sense of identity and therefore the vision for my life is to live as a precious child of God for now and for eternity. That's my vision statement for my life. 
And so the, the, anything that flows from that in terms of performance is because of that. And so it is a joy for me, even today, to have a devotional time every day. I look forward to that, to spend time just listening to the scriptures, engaging and being in prayer. And, and uh, that's just part of the rhythm of my, of my life. It's that which has enabled to, me to feed myself. And I reiterate that, you know, that, it, that has been significant for me as a person. Um, that I can confess my sin, I can repent of things, I can have my mind renewed, I can explore new things, I can risk trying new things. Why? Because I have that assurance from God. The, the one who said way back then, I've got you, is still the same one who's saying that to me today. And so I can risk failure. Uh, you know, I can be fired from a church. I can be betrayed and denied by people, and that will deeply hurt me, but it never affects my relationship with God. He, uh, my understanding of God, and let's use the word he, but my understanding of God is he has never let me down, ever. He's never uh, in any way allowed a space of doubt uh, to creep in as to God's nature and his faithfulness and his loyalty and his ultimate best for me. All I've wanted to do is to explore God more and more. Uh, and uh, devotions and reading, knowing, knowing God, J.L. Packer's books and C.S. Lewis and Dallas Willard and all of those kind of uh, uh, folks have helped me. Richard Raw have helped me to deepen my picture of God. One of the, so th that's the that's the around my initial experience of God, which has been built on and deepened and developed, but has never uh, gone away from that initial deep sense of personal intimacy with the God who holds me. Um, and isn't just undergirding my life, but is part of the fabric of my being. So let's come back to the second question about my, uh, my calling. You know, growing up in a manse where, uh, you know, calling is around you, that was never thrust on me. My father never said to me, uh, have, you, have you considered the, the ministry? Never. Even though I was in leadership positions and doing things and leading Bible studies and youth groups and choirs and all the rest of there was never a question. And one day, um, I, uh, I, I, I was on a youth camp, and I sat down quietly with my scriptures. And I said, all right, God, I'm working at the Old Mutual. I've done my military service. Here I am. I'm, you know, 20 years old, uh, whatever it is. And, and I really would like to think about, um, you know, the rest of my career. I can, mean, I can stay at the Old Mutual. They'd offered me promotion and training to be I'm a sales director in the company. Uh, and certainly in the pensions department, uh, and, uh, and, and I said, okay, do I really want to do this? And if my mentor at the time, Dave, uh, and he said to me, Christopher, what do you want to sell? Do you want to sell life insurance and pensions things uh, and, and pension schemes? And I said, no. And so I sat there with the open scriptures, and I felt God saying to me through Isaiah, you know, um, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All right, what does that mean? And I felt that the God was saying to me, go and study the, the scriptures. So I registered in the, the best Bible college I could at the time, Rosebank Bible College, which is, uh, you know, comes out of more of the conservative uh, fundamentalistic route. And uh, here, so here am I as a Methodist uh, in a, quite a conservative fundamentalist environment, but built great friendships there and enjoyed the, the dissonance uh, that went on with me some, at some points because I you know, struggled with some of the issues. But during that year, 
I felt God saying to you, I want you to be a preacher. Okay, I'd like you to be a preacher. You've been doing it in different forums. I would like you to preach. So I, I began to explore preaching. Now, I'm giving this as an evolutionary way because uh, for me, it was evolving. It wasn't a, uh, a Damascus Road experience in terms of calling or conversion. For me, there were defined moments in the, in the equation, as with my journey at 16 and 21 and so on, and even into 22, 23 years old, et cetera, and beyond. These things in my calling, a sense of knowing that God had called me and God had placed in my heart a desire to tell people about God. And I realized during that year that, uh, and I excelled in the year. I was on the SRC and I led worship teams and I was doing, doing different things. And so suddenly I was saying, this is my space. And I realized that I really enjoyed uh, engaging with the scriptures and theology and, and particularly laid on my heart was, was mission, the passion for missional thinking. Even in those days, I was enraptured by missional thinking right back then, you know. Um, and so it was, you know, the, con, in the, the coined phrase which they used, uh, Monty Sheldon used, word-based, world-faced. Uh, and it, whilst I was struggle with the, the Bible as, determined, uh, as defined as the word of God, I've always struggled with that. Uh, but the understanding that God is the word and Jesus is the word made flesh, that's the focus. Um, so I find myself not a fundamentalist. Go off to university, uh, sorry, before I went to university, while it's still at Bible college. I went to the South Coast and was sitting on the beach, a sunrise service, Easter Sunday morning. And I felt as I watched Ethel Emmett take the bread and the wine and offer communion at that Sunday morning sunrise service on the beach, there was a deep stirring in my spirit and said, Christopher, that's what I want you to do. So there was a calling to the preaching, but also a calling to a sacramental thing. But undergirding that was this uh, unshaken sense of being called to mission work. So when I went to Lutrichart, I was stationed there as a candidate for the ministry. I felt like a pig in mud, planting churches, visiting people in rural areas, uh, coming alongside young people in, in rural areas, uh, sitting in mud huts, uh, establishing uh, garden, food gardens to feed people, all that kind of stuff, you know, mixing cement, building buildings. I mean, it was just fantastic, you know. And so really found that I was then running uh, what I used to call, uh, you called it the New Disciples Course. I put it together. It's now called Alpha, but it's the same thing. But I put it together and I was teaching people how to read the Bible, how to pray, use the Holy Spirit, all those kind of things, because that's who I was. Uh, and, uh, and I just saw churches growing. And that's why they kept me a second year, because it doubled in size in the time that I was there, the work. We planted four churches and, and so on. And I was just amazed at what God could do. I just thought, wow, you know. So I went off to university uh, greatly enthused by that sense of affirmation of my call. Now, I would never put myself down as a great preacher, ever. If you want to uh, put me on a stage and press a button and say, preach. I mean, I've, got, I've always got a sermon going on in my head, but it's not because I necessarily think that I'm anything of a great preacher at all. But I am a, a person who likes to discern what, where, the, where the community is, what's happening in the essence of the community, and what is the word that they need to hear from God right now. And so it wasn't so much didactic. This is what God says. It's an encounter. And I always wanted the, the whole experience of worship 
not just to be about the preached, but about the encounter of, with a transformational God, the God who can change our lives. Uh, and so that led me into evangelism, but primarily into ministry in the spirit. When I was um, out of university, went to Didier, the church traveled in size, and we built up a multicultural, uh, interracial, intergenerational congregation, and we built a manse and grew the church and so on. So we saw wonderful work happening in that state. I went off to Northfield, and Alexander Fenter, uh, was it, I was introduced to him again, and uh, the ministry in the spirit of praying for folk in deep intimacy with God and just waiting for God to do work in people's lives was deeply transformative for me in my ministry style. Coming out of a reformed kind of didactic Bible college and information out of university, here I was uh, in a learning mode how to listen. And therefore, moving into, I mean, uh, uh, Northfields uh, uh, doubled in size while I was there and, and part of the team with Trevor Hudson and Bill Meeker and so on, thoroughly enjoyed uh, Northfield in those days and was able to establish the walk to Emmaus around the country and so on. So saw God affirming that sense of call. So when I went on to, from uh, North, uh, Northfield to Westview, in the 10 years I was there, we traveled in size from 800 to 2,500 members. We moved from five small groups to 128 small groups. And we ran alpha courses and did leadership training and development. But praying for folk to know the intimacy of God in their reality. And so we pray with words of wisdom and words of knowledge over people incessantly. And so saw the dynamism of a church that was missional whose vision was to be a living demonstration of the kingdom of God. That was their vision statement. Their mission statement was to be God people and build God's people. And was, I was in my element just seeing the power of the spirit, seeing disciples being made, seeing churches multiplied, uh, because we planted four churches in those 10 years as well, in Eliminates Bosch, in Cornwall Hill, in Midstream, and in Menandi. And so we had literally multiplied as well as trebled in size. And so the dynamism was fantastic and loved the, the experience of that and built up a fantastic team. So out of that experience and sense of my fulfillment of my calling leads me now to the third question that you've asked me to, ra ra uh, to deal with. At what moment did I realize that the classic church was not working? Well, I moved from Westview out of a wonderful experience. They begged me to stay, uh, and I really felt that the Spirit had said to, to Lee and I and the girls that we needed to move to Bryanston, and so off we went. Bryanston, a congregation, 3,000 members, a staff of 100, and so on. And in the, in the first, uh, within the first year, I was told that I could be who I wanted to be, and we launched into celebrations, 50th anniversary celebrations, and really got going. But as soon as the honeymoon was over, the institution clicked in par excellence. And I began to see that my own spirit was starting to die. Because I didn't feel that I could minister in the power of the spirit while I was still preaching, while I was still the senior, pre uh, senior minister and preaching and building out the team, I realized that there was a different thing that was needed of me. And, and, and so we became, and I, I, I hesitate to say this, but the corporate nature of a massive church, it was the largest and the wealthiest church in the Methodist church at the time. We had uh, five worship services on a Sunday. And during that time, 
I introduced Alphora and I introduced disciple making. We began to multiply. So we had about 140 small groups uh, and built up a team where I was leading nothing in the life of the church. I had a team of people that were doing this stuff. So I invested in more and more people. And I understood that my role at that particular in time, uh, in that particular season of ministry, was that I needed to be investing in others and training others and equipping others. But the institution absolutely got in the way. Let's just explore that for a, for, for a bit, because the, the, the concept of going, you know, of wanting people to experientially engage God and fit that into the process of doing church and the event of doing church bumps up against the institution of doing church. What I'm hearing you reflect in that sense is is something that I, I think we're comfortable having conversations around, but many people struggle to find the right kind of language for. And that is that that the doing of church is not necessarily the best place in that sense to be experiencing God. And they're, they're a little bit, you know, theoretically, it's the same thing. Theoretically, it's the same goal in mind. But in practice, there's that friction. And so it ends up being more that the kind of church leader that you've been and the kind of work that you've done ends up being the minority in terms of church experience. And so, so it's almost like, like in that sense, you, people like you come along for a season in a church, change the, the life and the dynamic, and you go away, and they can return to business as usual. And when you go into some churches, you've got to fight that fight to try and establish that or reestablish that. You know, and, and you're working against the culture that's there. I mean, is that a bit of a fair assessment in, in, in your mind? Yes, certainly. Christopher, can, you, can I just jump in? I'd love for you to take that a little bit further for, for our listeners in terms of what you're talking about, because I'm picking up this tension that you're describing, and some of it, you know, as Tim says earlier, is, is kind of it's quite plain for people who've been through it. I think one of the questions I'm, I'm hoping that we can answer for people who are asking questions around the institutional churches you know what's kind of going on behind the scenes that we don't see what is what is the actual problem here and i think you're you're really you're pointing towards some of those would you be able to flesh that out in terms of this idea of the institution training ministers and setting that what kind of job are they expected to do what is the institution trying to create in terms of what church must look like and then your, your parallel of your tensions on the other side. It would be great if you could take us a little bit further. Yeah, because I, I really, really don't want to get into the name, blame, shame, game thing. You know, I really don't. No, we don't. But we, what, what, what we do want to get into is, is grappling with a sense of, of what, is the, 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 what is the conflict? What are we trying to – what is the shift that is needed? Because, because there are people that are experiencing the need for the shift. And traditionally, the church keeps going and they leave. And so there's a lot of people that are basically in the, in the pool where they feel they need to be doing church and they need to be part of church. And, and they, can't, they can't join any of these alternatives because the church is the only thing that has authority. The church is the only thing that's safe. The church is, you know, in, in that sense, you know, the, the, the language of some people is always like, you know, you know, church comes first in the sense that you have to be a part of the church. You have to you know, be in submission to the church and, you know, in fellowship in the church. And of course, there, there's a particular institutional model and the expression of that institutional model that is, that is actually primary. And so in some ways, there's, there is a deep wrestling and there's a, there is a deep 
deconstruction that in your journey has taken place alongside the evolving processes that you mentioned, you know, your experience of God and your experience of your calling, evolving processes, your, your, your realization that there's a need for a change is likewise an evolving process. And that's tremendously valuable, you know, so, so to, you know, to, to get into that a bit and, and the questions that Steve asked just around that as well. Come, come back to the answer, come back to the questions if I don't answer them uh, as you've asked them, Steve. One of the things that I realized in the institutional uh, thing was um, my predecessor was a very good preacher, uh, but he was a very strong personality. Uh, and I made a decision uh, many years ago uh, that when David Koresh uh, took all his followers and they committed suicide, I was deeply, deeply concerned about personality cults and about people who are very strong uh, individuals, uh, and they build up uh, people who are followers of them. And I've been very committed to building up a team of people, collaborative, according to different gifts and abilities and so on, to compensate for my glaring weaknesses so that, that we can do this together. Uh, and so I was committed to building up teams. So that's the essence of my being. And, and folks just didn't get that. I mean, you can ask Lee, is she just said, the people around you don't get what you're trying to do. Now, now, that's, now that's interesting. Why, why do you think that was? Obviously, this is the realm of speculation you know, and, and of tradition and the power of tradition, the power of the, you know, what, what um, you know, we've been banding around the fact that there's, a, there's an underlying paradigm to doing church. And, and yeah, and in deconstruction, we're not looking to 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 critique and to and to blame and to burn things down so much as to to understand what this underlying paradigm is, so that you know we can help people get away from it as well. I think the institution as a whole, and certainly within my denomination, uh, and I, I and I want to link it to it's it is uh, it is systemic. And not just uh, not just uh, in terms of training, but we have elevated the clergy. And I want to say this: we have created the clergy to be something so distinctly other, uh, and that is systemic. That uh, means that the clergy create clergy-centric communities or churches, where the minister is everything and has to do everything and is the center of everything and is the only one who can do communion and baptisms and lead leaders meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have, are expected to be this omnicompetent being that is actually not biblical, nor is it nor is justifiable from, uh, from personalities and so on. But also it is, breaks down the very dynamic of what it means to be part of community. And so ministry becomes this um, by nature of the, the systemic way in which the church is structured and, and, and particularly those who are, who are um, hierarchy prone. They want to have one person who is the champion, the one, the one being who is omnicompetent and around, around whom everything happens. And so that takes me back to say the training, because we are creating a culture of training uh, institutional uh, ministers who simply replicate and duplicate they're into institutional preservation and into seriously maintaining that which they have. And I am I'm the recipient of that. I get a pension from that institution. I received education through that. So I'm really grateful for that. 
But when an institution exists for itself and not for the kingdom of God, it then has to put more and more systems in place to sustain itself. An institution, therefore, uh, becomes self-serving and not God-serving. And so the ministers then are trained to preserve the institution, go and do the sacramental safaris and whatever else they do. Mm. Well, well, perhaps just give, it, uh, give us a little bit of context for that for our listeners who might... Uh... So here you've got, a, you've got a one minister and he's got 15 congregations. So he goes and visits the congregations every 15 Sundays. He gets to get communion and baptism and confirmation all in one. Once a quarter, he gets to a church. That's it. And so there's no significant disciple-making happening. You are just simply performing religious practices and rituals. Uh, and as meaningful and as wonderful as they are, uh, it's, 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 it's superficial. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so in that sense, the minister is delivering particular uh, goods and services, the, the, the good old Christian goods and, ser- goods and services, but there isn't, yeah, but there isn't an engagement in terms of, in terms of the, the inner life. No, no. How can you disciple people when you see them once a quarter? You can't do that, you know. And so, so this is when I began to wrestle with what is the personal, what is this? And I, and I realized trying to pull clergy together in a meeting, six clergy, they were all on their own ego missions. And when I'd say, guys, we need to think about where the church is going. I couldn't do that. And I have to confess, I failed. I couldn't bring the clergy team together to one unified vision of what God wants us, wanted us to do. Each of them were on their own mission. And I realized that I failed 100%. And so what happened was that uh, the institution that was set up and that I tried to create, expressing the fivefold ministries, you know, the APS things from Alan Hurst and others, you know, um, uh, the apostolic prophetic teaching, evangelist and, and pastoring, uh, you know, those fivefold ministries. To build a church around that, I failed to pull everyone into a place where we unified. And literally, uh, it was a bomb just uh, waiting to explode. That's interesting. You know, I'm I'm just struck by, I'm I'm not sure if this is sort of, uh, you can tell me as I reflect this to you, whether you feel it's accurate or not. But I'm struck by, as you say that, Christopher, it's almost a sense of having succeeded 100% at the same time as having failed. Because the institution that you've described that is built around the single personality, the single person, the person who's special and is meant to be the the central spoke of this wheel, you know, the linchpin, all of those kinds of things. You go in to challenge that. And, and naturally, you know, as, as we've had many conversations with people and those who've been in these situations get, the machine does not respond well to grit in the cogs even if that grit is trying to provoke the machine to turn into a better machine or a different machine, because this machine is actually hurtful to people. So the, the idea of a temple being created that needs more and more sacrifices just to sustain it, but it's not actually doing anything helpful in the community. But I'm struck in that, I'm struck in that, that perhaps the absolute success in that is that if you had been able to turn it around, then it would have preserved that system, perhaps, in terms of one central figure sort of pulling everything together. I wonder if, if that is even a sort of a, 
a work in itself of protest against the institution. Um, I don't know if I'm hearing you correctly. You know, Christopher, as a as a year, you reflect on that sense of, of failure, and I, there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion behind it. But but it it is also this kind of thing where where you're set up to be that leader, but a leader is supposed to be a specific thing, and by leading, you're not being that thing. And so and so, in some senses, as you say, it is it does set you up for failure. What, what's interesting with what you reflect is that I hear you I hear you going, I'm a I'm I'm a participant protester in this. And and I'm a successful failure in this. And there's these there's these interesting um, tensions that are juxtaposed within your journey and the process within that. And, and both must surely inform you in a very deep way about about the the, the, the change, but not in a superficial level. Change in the in the deeper level. Change that 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 says that systems. Can be good systems, can be bad, but systems can be created and they can be recreated, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so there's there's a there's 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 a lot more to this than just the simple, you know, church institution bad, you know, throw it all away. As opposed to as opposed to this is a system that has taken on a life of its own. It's become a bit parasitic and path, pathological, but but there's potential to repurpose it or reuse it and stuff like that as well. So. Hmm, I wonder, I'm wondering how that strikes you. Yeah. Let me say to you that uh, I, I, I looked for kindred spirits uh, who would uh, understand uh, what I was trying to do uh, and found very few of them and uh, the competitive space. Uh, and I think that's another thing that the, 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 the institution does. It, it creates um, comp- competition. And you know it doesn't do well for you know um, uh, you know for competitive spirits because uh, if if somebody if if someone's a better preacher than you, then if they come in as your guest and they preach better than you, then the congregation will say, oh, we want them as our minister. Oh no, that's so much better. And so insecurities come out. And I tried never to be in that space because I can see that it would gnaw away at my soul. You know, uh, so wanted to always invite others. And so I invited other ministers to come. Boy, did I get into flack from the local team. How dare you invite a visiting preacher? We here, we must preach. Well, you know, the visiting preacher helps us to make sure that we're part of the wider picture of God and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Man, you, you can see what I'm saying here. They were looking after their own, their own, their own positions and, and deeply concerned that they, they would lose their jobs because, you know, the whole insecurity thing. So I think that part of the system is it protects insecurities. And whilst I think that that's okay, I think all of us need to face all our own insecurities and deal with them at the foot of the cross. Uh, And because if we truly say that it's not about me, it's about God, it's no longer either live that Christ lives in in me, Uh, for me to live live as Christ and die as gay, those kind of things, we need to be willing to make the ultimate thing uh, act of worship and say, I'm here for God and God's purposes and God's kingdom. Now, in that thinking, it led me to a place where I went and sat at the Methodist minister's, uh, the Methodist church's presiding bishop's office. And uh, when things started going a bit chaotic, I went and sat in his office and I said, help. And he said, Christopher, what is your calling? What do you want to do? I said, I want to go and create missional churches. He looked at me and he said, and I'm feeling emotion, 
as I say this, he said, go and do that. I needed my permission giver to give me permission to do what I was really called to do. But that meant that I had to step out of the institution and take early retirement at the age of 55 in order for me to do what I was really called to do. And that was, in a sense, a greatly freeing moment because then the institution wrote me a letter of commendation and you know, eulogization and, well, I guess, you know, Chris is so great and he's wonderful and we commend him and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it was the institution's realization that they could not create a place in their institution for me to do what I was called to do. But within that was an incredible amount of good news for me. In responding to what you've just shared, that um, I'm just thinking how to phrase this. The gift that you were given and that you accepted in terms of that permission giving and the, the, the sort of the movement away from institution into what I'm hoping to explore a little bit with you now in terms of like, I'm just projecting now must have been quite scary, I imagine, um, and at the same time quite exhilarating to, to find a new path. But I just wanted to share with you that the gift that you were given there that you received uh, was a gift that, ca that uh, carried on giving. Because when I was in a space of needing a permission giver, as God might have it, I was brought across your path again. And you were that voice for me that said something very similar with very different words in meeting in a tiny little coffee shop somewhere in Pretoria for an hour one day. And so I just wanted to reflect that back into kind of the emotion of that moment that you shared with us just now um, of how much goodness and worth there must have been. And I can hear that in your voice. Um, and I can see that also then just through my own eyes in how that has continued to give because that move uh, in some ways enabled my move. Um, and that's quite a beautiful thing. So, As I, as I hear both of you reflect on that, like, one of the accusations always against against deconstructors and people who take that path either after or as an alternative to the institution are, are usually criticized as being these lone rangers, these rebels. And, and and to hear both of you speak about needing the permission givers and and finding that within the context that you needed to, it basically tells the story of a continuity of of looking of a continuity between the institution and what comes afterwards. And I think, I think that's largely, it's, 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 a, it's an unexplored dimension because I feel like in many ways, the institution and those that preserve it want to write off the competition. I, I, I come back to a particular moment when I was this young 22-year-old in Louis Trichardt. Now, the minister before me um, uh, broke away from the Methodist church and started his own church as people do down the road, okay? So I arrived to a very divided and broken church. So I visited everybody in their homes, prayed with them, built up community and that kind of stuff. But then they wanted to do a recognition of this new guy's uh, church. So somehow I got an invitation to the launch of his new church. So being stupid and young, I went along. There are many wonderful things done under, done under the guise of stupid and young. So they then just saying, oh, we're so grateful that we're so glad that you've joined us and you've left the other side and joined our side and all this kind of stuff. And I'm listening to all of this stuff, you know. And so then they say, would anybody else like to say something? So I get up 
this young, stupid 22-year-old, and I just say, I'm not sure whose side's on whose side and who, who's which sides, and I'm not sure about sides at all. All I know is that there's one side, and that's the kingdom of God. And if you're in the kingdom of God, God bless you. Go and do what you need to do. And I sat down. There was stony silence for like 10 minutes or so, but it felt like 10 minutes after I sat down. But that's the essence, you know, for me. And I continued to be in that space. And therefore, um, and I'm grateful to the presiding bishop at the time, Bishop Siwa, because he was also the, the president of the South African Council of Churches. And so he had a very ecumenical mindset. And he said, go, go, you know. So I have found tremendously supportive people within the Methodist Church. Uh, you know, Bishop Temba has been incredibly supportive. He's now uh, Reverend Temba. And I found uh, Bishop um, Purity Malinga, who's a presiding bishop now, I found her very supportive of what I'm doing. And so the institution had these beautiful people within it who get it, who understand it. And are not, uh, but alongside of that, you have these institutional um, beings who who are there to compound uh, the institution's dynamic and to continue it. And and I don't want to fight that. I just would like to be yeast in the love of something that's better and new and helpful because I've seen it work. I saw it happen at, at Northfield. I saw it happen at Westview. And the potentials are always there because the spirit of God is everywhere. We've been talking to other deconstructors and what their eye landed on in terms of what the change, you know, what what encouraged the change for them, what encouraged them to move on or to think differently. It differs between people. And, and what I like about what you're reflecting is basically looking at the way in which the the institution is not doing what it what it perhaps sets, ostensibly sets out to do. And in that sense, it becomes an inhibitor. It's not standing in the way of the work. But this this thing that you reflect where where you've got this personal sense of calling, where you feel like God has called you and you've got some clarity in terms of what that looks like, is and that journey of not being able to fulfill that in the institution is is literally a, a conversation I feel like I've had with a dozen people over the last three years alone who are in ministry and there's a discrepancy between their ministerial job and career and their sense of what God's calling them to. And so in many ways, they, they, they run one job that they get paid for that takes the majority of their time. And then their side project is their calling. Um, you know, is that something that you find, is that something that you come across in your conversations with people as well? Yeah, um, because the, the institution by nature will always, always be self-preserving. And whilst that's okay for, for me, uh, you know, it was okay for me because it worked for me. And the, and the institution gave me the freedom to fulfill my calling. And I, and I want to say this by affirmation. I was recognized as a coordinator in the High Falcon Swaziland district because I was able to express my missional call by planting churches and starting walks to Emmaus and being a pioneer and all those kind of things. And when I was in the Lipopo district, I was appointed as the evangelism and church growth coordinator. So I was running Alpha courses and training Alpha and doing this and multiplying things and growing churches and planting churches because the institution gave me permission to do that and validation to do that. So I was grateful. But then the counter of that is when the institution, uh, for whatever reason, insecurity, competitiveness, blah, 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 uh, envy, et cetera, et cetera, when that gets in the way, then the institution becomes toxic uh, and preventative, and the calling can be squished. And I had to make a choice. 
Either I could stay within that until I was 65 and I could gain the whole world and lose my soul, or I could step out of the institution and with all the securities that come with that and risk being in a different place. And so I, I went on a journey with 12 men. Uh, I particularly asked a group of men to journey with me for a period of about eight months. And each month we would get together and pray and discern. And they were very clear, given my gifts and abilities and calling and so on. They said to me, what you need to do is go off and start a ministry, uh, a, a kind of a consultation ministry. I, I call it missional coaching, but they, they didn't know the, the better term. But, um, and they affirmed that for me. And I've had support from people for the last six years, enabling that to happen. And so uh, for me, you know, if something survives three years in a, in a startup, I think it's doing exceptionally well because most startups die within three years. So it's been a validation uh, of my, uh, my connectivity to that sense of call. But I go on to say this. Last Sunday, I preached in a Methodist church. This Sunday, I'm preaching in a Methodist church. You with me? <laughs> because they still need what I have to offer. And I'm still being requested over and over again to be involved and to run training courses and all that kind of stuff because they need what I have to offer. But I can only do that because I have stepped out of the, the, the institution which squishes me into a particular mold in order for me to fulfill that which I can do so that I can serve back into the institution according to that which is my gifting and calling and ability. Uh, and that gives me huge freedom. And I'm grateful for the opportunities and the affirmation and recognition that comes with that. But the beautiful thing is not just in the Methodist church, it's in Presbyterian churches and congregational churches and Anglican churches and vineyard churches, etc. So there's greater freedom within me in that space. And I love that freedom. That's great. Christopher, I wanted to I wanted to ask you just about that leaving journey. Um, and bef before I go there, I just wanted to um, just comment quickly on something you'd said in terms of your your decision to move out. And that wording I thought was really poignant, but also very direct. Kind of gain the whole world and lose your soul, because I've had similar experience to Tim, um, and I think your own that you're speaking of. But also, it's not just ministry leaders, church leaders, ministers, priests, pastors, etc., who experience that sense of doing church and on the side continuing with their calling, which is what, where they really come alive. I also just see church members, and without you know, without trying to maintain this picture of hierarchy of, of ministers and pastors, etc., on the top and the the pew warmers on the bottom, but. There is, there is a bit of a distinction in some ways, just even in, in our language as we understand people. Um, but just people who are going, faithful members, you know, day in and day out, week in and week out, serving churches, etc., I think are also experiencing very similar of this idea of belonging to a community, inputting into a community, serving this community, doing the kind of church stuff, and then also having to find ways around doing the church stuff to actually live out their calling because there's a lot of barriers sometimes to what they, they sense they need to bring to a community or what they should be doing with their lives, et cetera. And I think my comment would be, in light of some of our work in this podcast being to, to help people who are listening in on these conversations, who are finding resonance with what we're talking about and going, well, that sounds a bit like me, is helping them hold on to those moments where they've heard other people say, 
I could carry on with this, but I know this is only going in one direction. And there's a sense of I've, I've possibly got lots to gain by staying, but I possibly have more to gain by leaving. And that those are valid and good things to explore rather than sensing, well, I must just stay in this institution. So, I mean, that really struck out for me and I, I thought I just wanted to highlight it. But I'm really interested in this moment of leaving. Um, you know, you, you, you transitioned well into this, this eight-month journey with this group of men, etc. But I'd love to know if you're willing to share those, those moments of decision. What was that like and what, what, what went with it as you looked into the future and wondered what was to come? You've had the kind of exhilaration and the emotion of the permission giving and there's a way forward. But what was that actual leaving like? And again, I've got in mind, you know, the listener who's, who's worried, I guess, or wondering about taking that step and will they have the exhilaration? What's on the other side of the exhilaration? Uh, what's, you know, what would you share in terms of that? What was that like for you? Yeah, no, I understand. But it's very vulnerable stuff because with, with that was a lot of rejection, you know, um, and, uh, and I had to cope with that. Uh, that I had a lot of attack on my personality attack on my leadership style, uh, and so on. So I had a lot of baggage to deal with within that space. And so I, I went to see a clinical psychologist for, an, uh, for session after session, unpacking the journey. Uh, you know, I've been seeing the same person for years. So they know me well. Uh, this person knows me well. So it was a question of just wrestling with that, um, with you know, my own sense of how I was coping with you know, leading a large church and the dynamics and pressures uh, and trying to pull it all together and the, the destruction that was going on inside of me, I had to get a, a, myself aware of, you know. And so when, when one is, um, uh, and, I, and I have to confess that when you, you know, my, my sense of call was so clear that I knew that if I didn't fulfill my call, I'd be betraying uh, my 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 the, the God I uh, you know was called to follow, and the God I loved, and the picture of God that I embraced. Uh, when that was so uh, was so conflicted within that environment, I don't know that I was a nice person to be around uh, because I uh, wanted to throw pull out a whip and start turning over tables, you know. Because uh, I felt that they weren't understanding the, the 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 motivation, and when I said this is my motivation, this is what motivates me, this is what I'm called to do, uh, it didn't fit in with their understanding and their paradigm, uh, and and that conflict uh, meant that the the leaving, they were happy that I left, uh, not the congregation, uh, but the institution and the actual core leadership. You know, so there was pain related to the uh, mismatching of my own sense of call and where I wanted to take the congregation uh, and where we discerned where the congregation should be going. It was all agreed to 100%. Unanimous. This is where we're going. Unanimous. Three months later, they, they said, no, we don't want to go there anymore. Change their minds and we don't want you anymore. So the, in a sense, that was uh, alongside of my deep sense of call, was a deep sense of the institution didn't agree anymore with the vision and the direction and the team that we were building up to move in that direction 
And suddenly, I don't know what happened, I cannot explain it, suddenly there was a no from their side, which made it easier for me to leave, in a sense, uh, because they, you know, they said, well, we don't want you to stay. Uh, but they don't. They, when I said to them, so what do you want in my place? They said, we have no idea. So that's the problem of institutionalism and the inadequate uh, leadership succession. So the painful side of it is, is, is that, that expression of, uh, of ministry that I was doing was rejected. But so it was very painful for me. But as with childbirth, and I come back from that biblical picture that Jesus gives, you know, childbirth is very painful. And, uh, and when the child is going uh, from the womb into the world, that is a painful journey for the child and the, and the, the birth giver. But out of that, something beautiful has happened. So my connection with OC Africa, my belonging to the team that's there, wonderfully supportive, prayer group, small group that Lee and I are part of, uh, you know, coaching, mentoring, freedom of opportunity. The universities offered me places to lecture and develop curriculums. Fresh Africa have created space for me to do what I do best. I'm getting phone calls from uh, all the time for folk to mentor them and encourage them. So I'm in a delightful place. I, I could not be more satisfyingly busy and happy because everything that I do makes sense around the essence of my core. That's, thank you, Christopher. I just want to say I really appreciate your, your willingness to engage with that question. I mean, obviously, the, the, the invitation is always there to be refused in terms of what we ask as well, but thank you. And I think I hear you saying two distinct things in response to that, you can tell me if I'm following you correctly. On, on the one hand, there was a there was a definite connection within yourself in terms of the experience and what you were going through. And on the second was kind of this okay to uh, to reach out and, and have help through the process rather than having to sort of isolate and go it alone. So I'm just very just wanted to say I'm very grateful for your willingness to respond to that. Thank you. Uh, perhaps I've risked saying far too much and possibly the edit will need to cut some things out uh, because, uh, you know, I don't know how widespread this will go. But I really, and I want to say this again, I don't want to blame anyone. If anyone is to blame, it's me. Uh, and, you know, and the, and the mistakes I've made along the way. But the institution did provide me with many, many wonderful things. But uh, when it came to a point that it no longer allowed me to do be who I am and be what I'm called to do, there, there was a freedom to move out. And I'm grateful that the institution didn't fire me, kick me out, you know, withdraw my ordination. They just said, okay, we bless you and you can leave. And uh, whilst they never gave me a farewell speech or a watch or anything like that or any form of uh, outward affirmation, nevertheless, the relationships that I have within the institution are still intact. Uh, and the one or two that are still broken, there's nothing I can do about that. I have to just let them be. And one day God will sort those out. But in the main, 99%, uh, I am in a happy place to be within whichever environmental institution or denomination. I have freedom in those spaces. And even those who do not like me, I still come back to what Jesus teaches me to do, to love your enemies and pray for those who give you a hard time. And that's what I do. And I pray regularly for those who struggle to live with me. Uh, and I pray that one day that they will learn to love their enemies. And even if I'm seen as their enemy or whatever else, that they would learn to love me. 
uh, in their own journey as well. So I'm hoping that grace would abound, that the kingdom of God would be the focus and that I would be no distraction from that in any way. Uh, and so that's where I hope that the spirit of this conversation will end. I, I, I must admit, the glory of the internet is that the person that really shouldn't hear you will probably hear this and take the deepest possible offense. But <laughs> but aside from those individuals, uh, I, I'm sure that many other people will hear this and hear a lot of their story being reflected in the conversation, you know, and, and reflected in your story, that there's a bit of a mirror in it. And, and I feel like this 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 leads in some way to, to the last real key question that we, we want to ask. And and there's possibly two ways to um, to I mean two ways amongst any number of ways to answer this, but but I'd, I'd like to ask this in two ways. The one thing is is what are you doing now? What is the work that you're doing? And and how do you see that as being as contributing to the solution? But then the other question I want to ask um, really goes back to this this underlying paradigm. And 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 the change and the work on the underlying paradigm, as opposed to just innovating on top of it. And that is the question of of, of like, what do you what do you think the deeper solution is? I, I think the, let me draw two particular pictures. And the one picture, uh, you know, it's drawn from the fact that Jesus used the word church once, and that's in Matthew sixteen eighteen, ecclesia, which means the called out ones or the sent ones. Uh, and 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 therefore he was never really into building institutions, but forming a movement. And I mean that's a big thing for in my world now, that um, we're about a movement rather than a institution or a static thing. I'm grateful for for those institutional things around that create the environment of safety and and so on. I get a pension and I get an income and all those kind of things. I pay tax, et cetera. But those institutional things are there to preserve and enable rather than to control, okay? So focus on the kingdom of God. The big picture is what gives me life. So how how does that express? That expresses in the, the fact that I do not belong to a local church uh, at the moment. Uh, my membership is uh, attached because I have to be, as a Methodist minister, to the local church here in Johannesburg. I'm in a circuit, and therefore I'm accountable to uh, to answer questions once a year uh, at a synod. So there is a, a maintenance of some connection with the institutional church, but I don't belong. My belongingness is in a small group through OC Africa, a missionary group, and that's where I really find deep fellowship. Now, that's an interdenominational group. All of us belong to different churches, but we gather every Thursday, and that for us, Lee and I, is church. We are loved and cared for. We study the scriptures together in some kind of a way, but we love and care for each other and pray deeply into each other's lives in a meaningful, life-transformative way. And for me, that's what church is about. It's not about a Bible study group. It's not about a... Um, you know, a, a particular uh, reason for existence other than helping each other to follow Jesus. Simple and clear. That's it. And that's a very powerful group, very powerful in its dynamic, in its confidentiality, in its caring, in its support, in its complete and utter high regard for each other. But it's utter loyalty to each other uh, around Jesus uh, in a non-confrontational but life-enabling way. The second expression of that is that I can find worship experiences anywhere. 
and I can go to a church on a Sunday. I can do it virtually. We can have a family worship at home. I can experience collective worship anywhere at any time with different people and in different contexts. And I love that freedom. So it's, uh, it's not stuck into a particular mold. And for me, that's been incredibly life-giving. So why am I saying these two dynamics? Because I feel I'm more into a kingdom dynamic and not a um, church dynamic, I love to find rich worship with those who, have, who are kindred spirits in that particular journey and to worship uh, in, in, a, in a similar kind of free kind of way. Then to express the other part of the question, my role and what I do is helping, I call it forming missional communities. I don't talk about church planting. Some people want to call about church planting. But the missional communities that we want to form, uh, that we do in our, in our courses and our mentoring and our coaching and our, uh, the stuff that we offer, uh, is to help people to, uh, first of all, experience the blessing and love of God. Then to belong to a, a, a set of people that in the relationships they can feel safe. Then it's about believing uh, in Jesus Christ as Lord as revealed by the Spirit. And that's the personal encounter with God. But it become, comes out of total and utter uh, blessing and acceptance and love, uh, unconditionally lavished upon them, undeserved. Uh, but they are blessed, and then they belong. That belongingness creates safety. Out of safety comes uh, um, a sense of believing, then behaving. And that's when their lives get transformed uh, into uh, out of those things that are darkness into the places of light. And then lastly, they, be, they become. It's about being. They be a person. Uh, you know, uh, the Jehovah said, I am who I am. It's about just being who you meant to be. Um, and I, I forget who it was who said uh, the, the best thing to do is to, let, um, is to burn for God or be set on fire for God. Uh, and people enjoy watching you do that. Uh, or something like that. But it's when you're living at your best self, that's when God is glorified. Uh, that's where God within me uh, can just be the best expressed. Um, and I, that's, that's ultimately where I want folk to be, that they're not squished into a mold, but they are being the best person they can be because there is freedom, because the God who loves them is within them. So it's that process of helping folks. And uh, so I've worked alongside the transgender community, the gay community, uh, those folk who are de-churched and unchurched, those folk who feel far from God. I do weddings and funerals for those who are around that I just connect with in whatever way, because that for me uh, is a reflection of the world is my parish rather than the parish is my world. I guess the challenge was always listening to someone provide a very shorthand accounts of of lots of deep stuff that has unfolded over a long period of time, and and as I as I hear you and as I listen to you, there's a lot of there's a lot of language and concepts that you 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 flow between, and and it's like a, a tremendously short summary, and I think I think that's always the outflow of a good long career and a good long calling. But, but I am left with the sense that, that from the age of, uh, you know, from your early 20s to your mid-50s, you, you lived and ministered in a particular dynamic 
that has got a shaping role on you. What I think is great about that is that is that it gives you a lot of a lot of inroads and a lot of I guess felt understanding that you can share with people who are in the institutions that are looking to innovate, that are looking to change, that are looking to see a lot more of the kinds of stuff that that I think the three of us would resonate around. And and I'm wondering how that's going. You know, like how how are you experiencing the institutional churches respond to you and respond around this? Are you experiencing them as being on board? Are you experiencing people within these institutions being on board for these uh, missional communities and these change dynamics? I, I, I think that... Um... Uh, you know, the the lovely thing is that there are certain um, yeah. Let me step into Jesus's story about the seeds and the ground, the various forms of ground. You know, um, there will be some churches that don't want change, and so um, you'll perhaps be invited to preach a guest preacher because they think it's a good thing to do or whatever else, and you go and preach. But you realize that it's just not going to change anything. Then you go to some churches where they'll just say, yeah, no, that was very interesting, but they'll go from their own direction, and that's fine. But there are some churches, and there are not a lot of them, that have just really taken this and absolutely run with it. You know, They have been very excited about uh, developing small groups and disciple-making ministries and planting churches. And I've seen a, a few, a few uh, who've planted completely new ministries that they've never thought of before. I arrive and I say, so how, do, how can we help you in the space? And they say, well, we don't know what to do. Well, let's pray. We discover something. Oh, okay. Put a team around it. Boof. And a whole ministry is taken off from zero to 150%. And I just say, wow. So I'm excited by some of the institutional churches who are willing to be missional, to be willing to be engaging in that particular process. It does mean that the minister needs to be on board because if the local leaders um, and, and this is part of the institution. If the leaders say, we want to go this direction, but the minister says, no, not interested, then there's going to be huge problems because of the nature and the makeup of, of how local churches are in that institution. But, you know, the, the, the lovely thing is that, um, that because, and, and, I, and I don't want to be, this may come across as egotistical and so on, but because some people really have trusted me through 30 years of ministry, they've watched me, the one oak, uh, you know, who said to me, uh, he's, he's a very influential minister now. He said when he was a probationer and a young minister, he observed me. Now, I never knew that they were watching me at all. I mean, you, you know you're being watched. I've lived my entire life in a fishbowl. I know that. But you weren't aware. He said, I have modeled my ministry on you because I've watched you for years. But he never had a conversation with me ever. You with me? So I think, okay. But when time came to it, he phoned me and said, come, I need your help now. And those are the kind of people that I want to work with because these are people are not simply wanting me to, to deliver. They're wanting me to come and be who I am because they know and trust who I am over many, many, many years. That is far more authentic for me because that's about relationship. That's about trust. That's not just about consumerism and helping them to deliver something that is a performance. I don't want to do that. I've said to you before, if you want me to perform, I will crumble down and fall under the stage. But if you want me to be with folk on a journey, that I can do, and, and, uh, and I'll be faithful to that journey. So I'm willing to work with the, 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 the congregations that are willing to work with me. And uh, there happen to be enough of those 
that uh, make it possible. So I'm grateful for that. So I'm not starving. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good start, yeah. yeah it does help. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I find it absolutely fascinating, Christopher. Thank you. I've appreciated your response to the questions and it's it's uh, fascinating to dig into your life and some of your experience. I'm with Tim in his comment. I think there's there's so much there that if we had another 48 hours, I would want to ask more questions and explore, et cetera, et cetera, because I think there's so much that can be unpacked. I'm forever thinking from the context of the listener and specifically those who are looking at the institution and going, this doesn't work, and across the spectrum from the first person to go, oh, that's an interesting response from a church leader or the institution or whatever, through to people who are on the cusp of leaving, to through to people who've just left, to those who will never come back, to those who have somehow come back, those who've started something completely different in all of our conversation that speaks to that different spectrum. I think it's also very helpful to, to have voices added that are like yours, the people who you have spent a long time within the institution and who are still serving in that capacity, but from a new perspective and from, from having been within the ability to step out, the ability to come in and help transform, still within that. For a lot of people, the, the understanding always of deconstruction is that deconstructionists are the enemies of the church, as opposed to the people who go, actually, the deconstructionists are people who, who, who are called by Christ and love the ecclesia. And their goal is to serve that as enabled by the institution of the church and despite the institution of the church. Stories like yours and so many others mirror what I what I feel I'm trying to encapsulate when I say that Jesus leaves the church in the same way that he leaves Judaism. You know, that in the same way he left temple and synagogue, he leaves the institution of the church too. And and it's a tremendous like nuanced statement that I, I feel, and it's it's encapsulated in these different stories, and and your story is similar to that. You know that in that sense, you you leave the church to be the church. That's part of the 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 mystery and part of the conundrum that people are wrestling with as they deconstruct. And it's it's just fantastic. It's fantastic to hear another story. Mm. The irony of this all is that I was given the topic to preach on on Sunday, and the topic that I was given is I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. <laughs> so I, I'm reminded again that God in his gentle dynamic way and the coincidence of the moment is that God is saying, look, Christopher, you're still part of this thing and you are building the church, but you're only building the church because I'm building the church and I'm going to do that through you. And that's just a great privilege and a great honor. I count that as one of Christ's naive sayings in the sense that I, I don't think he necessarily envisaged battling against the institutional church. No, I think. not at all. No, that's, <laughs> the, that's the point. That's the point. And he exactly. knew that. You know, yeah. He knew that. That's why he only used the word ecclesia once, you know, because he knew that that could be a real problem. That's, that's throwing a stone into a pool, you know. It's just going to have ripples all over the place. Christopher, thank you so much. I've, I've really appreciated, as I've said, your, your willingness to answer questions, to, to share of your life and your experience and your journey, uh, to share very vulnerably definitely at stages, to share also your theoretical insights and your experience from a long career. So thank you very much for joining us and for being willing to answer all these questions and be in conversation with us. We really appreciate it.